God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was the life of all mankind. In him was the light of all mankind. Oh, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So I want to encourage you to always memorize Scripture and learn it. The Bible then goes on to talk about John the Baptist a little bit, and it says the true light in verse 9 that gives light to everyone who was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. So let's just be very clear. When we put the world was made through him, and then we go up to the beginning here when it says through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. If we, uh, oh man, I just moved it because you guys put that in a special spot. Would you put that right where you had it? Thank you. I'm so sorry. I wasn't even, I was like, why is it so over there? And I just moved it. What I want us to do is to look at what things are made of, uh, things that have been made and things that have not been made. So look at this right here. These are things that have been made. And then over here are things that have not, not been made. Where does Jesus belong in things that uh, have been made or things that have not been made? So Jesus is here. How do we know Jesus is in the place where things have not been made? Because it says he makes all the things that have been made. Does everybody get that? So right there, even if you don't feel confident arguing with the Jehovah Witness in John chapter 1, verse 1, move them through it and say, through him all things were made. They try to put there like all other things. No, 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 all things. And it's very clear because it goes on to say, without him nothing was made that has been made. So can Jesus be in the made category? No, because there is nothing that is in the made category that wasn't created created by him. He created every single thing in the made category. So if Jesus is the maker of everything in the made category, he cannot be in the made category. That's an argument from R.C. Sproul, by the way. So it says he made the world, but the world did not recognize him. Now verse 11, he came to that which was his own. So he came for his own people, but his own did not receive him. Now this is why John is telling the stories, because he already knows that the people have heard the gospel and all that. He wants to explain to them who Jesus is. So he's saying this is why he's dead. he was uh, crucified, and then why he rose from the dead is because his own people killed him. Now, verse 12, yet to all who did receive him, those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or husband's will, but born of God. That's one of the scriptures like the Calvinists try to use to say that regeneration precedes being born again. In other words, God does a work in your heart first, and then you get, uh, you, he saves you first, and then you confess that you want to be saved, which is, you know, actually putting the cart before the horse. But look at what Daniel Wallace does here with that verse. He explains to you what the human decision is literally in the Greek there. Let me go to it in verse 13 so that you can see it. When it says, or of the will of flesh, which would be like human decision, or the husband's will, or the natural descent, look at how he puts all of these together here. Let me start up here in uh, verse uh, 12, rather. Let me go all the way up here, because he's going to take his time with this, okay? Where does he start? Here we go. Okay, verse 12. That we believe and trust in him. Okay, now this part right here, okay. 
Okay. In the womb, I was molded into flesh, wisdom 7.1. This is an extra biblical passage. Within the period of 10 months, compacted with blood from the seed of a man in the pleasure of marriage. In John 1.13, the plural, amaton, amaton, may imply the action of both parents. It may also refer, refer to the genetic contribution of both parents and so be equivalent to human descent. Okay, so this is where he says, not, we are not born of human descent. Now let's keep going. Now it says, or the will of the flesh, which is going to, let me just put it in the NET right here so you guys can see it so it will be matching. What they try to say here is that you don't make a decision to be saved, but I want to make sure that you get what exactly is being said here in this passage. And in this part where it says, of human desire or of the will of the flesh, the phrase, odii ek thela enmatas, sarkas, trying to pronounce it, is more clearly a reference to sexual desire. But it should be noted that Sarks and John does not convey the evil sense common in Paul's usage. So when it says, not by a human desire, not by a human desire, it's not a desire of the flesh referring to sex. So this is all right here referring to the decision of being born into it, a decision to have sex and to be given it, all of those things are clearly not how we are born again. Now, why is that important? Because when you look at the NIV, sometimes people take this where it says, uh, nor of nat not of natural descent, nor of human decision, meaning you don't do decide to be saved. Do you get why I'm stopping right here? Because they'll tell you, it wasn't your decision to be saved. It was God's decision. That's not what it means. It doesn't, the word decision is not in there. The NIV is mistranslating it. Let me show you in the King James so you can see it a little bit more clear. Look at the verse right here. But as many as received and believed him, even them that believed on, uh, excuse me, um, even them that believes on his name, not born of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man. Now, what does that refer to? Like, oh, I didn't have a choice and not my will. No, no, no. The will of flesh, sarks, and sexuality. In the, it's not through inherited blood. It's not through in having sex. You're not giving it that way. And when it says not the will of man, what it means is not the husband's decision. That's why when you take your time and work through it, the Greek supports the NET more clear. The NIV has partial of it correct, but the NET is better. Children not born of human parents. That's what it means there when it says in the King James, not born of blood, not of the human parents. Now when it says, not born of the flesh, what it means there is, not of human sexual desire, sexual desire, or of a husband's decision, that's what, uh, the will of man means not of a human's, a husband's decision. So in other words, to take this and try to say that we don't have a choice in whether or not to be saved because of the usage of those terms right there is incorrect. The usage of these terms as it's broken down into the Greek language shows us, and I'll show you one more commentary as well. The, um, the NIV cultural study background, it talks about this right here. Um, God has made his chosen people his children, and that's not how you're being chosen now by being a Jew. That's in reference to that. 
and then being born of God is our decision, not something that God does and forces upon us. And let me show one other one. I believe I have it here. Um, I've studied this, the expositor's commentary. There we go. Um, Become indicates that people are not the spiritual children of God by natural birth, for we cannot become what we already are. The verb implies a change of nature. The word children is parallel to the Scottish born ones, an emphasis vital, etc. Not of natural descent excludes, excludes a purely physical process, not of human decision, rules out the result of any biological urge or a husband will, shows us that this kind of birth is not merely the outcome of a legal marriage. So this does not take away our choice to be saved. Jesus is not forcing himself on us. All the commentaries that are being open-minded with the discussion understand the Greek there is really hitting towards the Jewish people who took pride in who they were and that they were going to secure this uh, uh, right as God's children to their children by having sex and making babies. That's all that it means right there. Now, are there other places where the Bible says that we choose, that it literally says we're choosing to be saved? Yes, it does. Let's go to uh, the book of James real quick. Just take a little detour here. The book of James, when it talks about... Um, Sinners coming to God, drawing near to God. I believe it's James chapter 2, correct? I did go to James chapter 4. I must have went right by it. Now I'm thinking it's James chapter 2. Yeah, let's try it right up here. Thank you. You know, this is a different uh, translation here. I have the NET. I didn't recognize the headings there. So submit to God. Let's go back up here. But he gives greater grace, therefore it says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So after the cross, and the gospel is being preached, whose choice is it now to draw near to God? It's our choice. Now, now they may take us to, to John chapter 6 and say, no one can come unless the Father draws them. We are not saying the initiation is of ours. Jesus has already made the initiation. We love because he first loved us. But what we're saying is once the drawing has begun, we get to decide. Now, in John chapter 6, that is specifically to the people who were previously in the old covenant. And Jesus was saying, all those that the Father gives me, I will not lose. The Father will draw them to me. You can't come unless the Father draws you. And the reason why he was saying that is because in the context there of John chapter 6, those Jewish people were rejecting him, but there were other Jewish people accepting him. And they wanted to really know what's the difference in one sense. Or he's answering the question of what's the difference before uh, they can get confused. He's trying to to tell them, this is the reason. You are not of my Father. You have not prepared yourself for the coming of the Messiah. But those like uh, in the temple, what was his name? Zechariah? Not John the Baptist's dad, but the other one. No, no, no. In the temple during Jesus' time that waited to see him. What was his name? Simeon. Simeon. Thank you. See, Simeon was ready. So Simeon was drawn to Jesus because the Father drew him and no one got lost from uh, Jesus's. Um, uh, from the Father's calling. All of them were brought in. Now, if we just look up the word will, uh, let me put in here willing. 
Look up the word willing, and let's go to, uh, I want to go back, let me go back here to the NIV and just show you quickly that the Bible talks about us needing to be willing, that if you are willing, let's go to a, uh, a few places here. Let me go here. Um, let me take you to... Let me see. Let's go to um, Matthew chapter 11, verse 14. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Do you notice that here, the willingness to accept John the Baptist as the Elijah was on their part? That's speaking to the Jews. So if you are willing to accept it, he as the Elijah, then you'll accept him as who he is. Now let me just show you a few more here. Verse uh, Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 7, but the people of Israel are not willing to listen to you because they are not willing to listen to me, for all the Israelites are hardened and obstinate. Isaiah 119 is the one I was thinking from the very beginning. Isaiah 119 says, if you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. So we can never miss an opportunity to correct Calvinists, amen? So if you want to learn something, get into a debate with an Arminianist, and we'll teach Calvinists something, amen? They try to act like they're the only ones who know the Bible, but I've never seen more uh, uh, proud, eisegetical type people than Calvinists. Uh, people will make mistakes all the time, but they are the most eisegeting people I know in the text, and when you hold them to it, they get rocked over and over and over again. You just have to take your time with them to Explain it verse upon verse and let them let the cards fall upon them. Let them cut off the branch that they're, they're sitting on. So because just even look at the, um, the prior verse right here. It says, but to as many as received him, yet to those who did receive him, to those who believed in his name. How in the world is John going to contradict himself in verse 13 when now he's telling you that the difference between those who recognized him and those who did not recognize him were those who received him? It says right here, he came to that which his own, but his own did not receive him. Is that because God did not allow them to be uh, able to receive when it says you have hard hearts, you have eyes, but you do not see, that comes from Isaiah. Isaiah already told you in verse one, chapter 1, verse 19, the reason why the curse of stupor was put upon the people of Israel in Isaiah's day is because they were not willing to listen and obey. They weren't willing to see. So now he gave them judicial hardening. That's what's happening when Jesus comes, and that's why the same scriptures of Isaiah are being used, seeing they don't see, hearing they don't understand, and that's because they were not willing. So when they came, when Jesus came to them, they chose not to receive him. They could have done otherwise. But to those who did receive him, who are some of the Jews that did receive him? Uh, Nicodemus received him. It looks like he had a soft heart towards Jesus. He humbled himself, as we learned in James. He drew near to Jesus. He didn't have to come to Jesus. Why did he come to Jesus at night? Because it says, draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. The initiation had already been given. What we believe is the provenient grace, the call of God had already been given, and now it was his choice to respond. Grace is not resistible. Otherwise, it wouldn't be grace. Uh, grace is not irresistible, rather. Otherwise, it wouldn't be grace. Grace is resistible. If I give you a gift and you can't uh, turn it down, is it a gift? 
No, if I, if I force a gift on you, is it a gift? No, it's, it's, it's now against the definition of a gift. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent or of, of, of human bloodline, nor of a human decision, which we should say here, nor of a carnal, fleshly, sexual decision, or of a husband's will. We're all serving this God and you're coming with me. Or honey, you're going to have more kids so we can have more children of God. No, but born of God. Does anybody here believe you made yourself born again? No, I no more made myself born again than I made myself born the first time. But do I have a choice in being born again? Absolutely. And let's just go back to the passage in John chapter 3 because it's the same author. When he talks about being born again to Nicodemus, we know the famous passage there in John 3.16. But keep going past that. It says, For God didn't send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stand condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. That's their choice. Now look at verse 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness. It's not that God didn't draw them all, that God left some in their own ways, as the Calvinist says. It says, no, but the people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does what, e- what is evil hates the light and will not come into the light for the fear that their deeds will be exposed. But now watch. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be clearly, so that it may be plainly seen that what they have done has not been done in the sight of, excuse me, that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. So if, if you, the Bible, and even went on in John chapter 8, says, you are my disciples if you know the truth, and then you keep that truth, the truth will set you free. Look at John chapter 8, verse 32. John chapter 8, verse 32. He says it, uh, let's go to verse 31. If you hold to my teachings, you're really my disciples. Who makes the choice if you hold to Jesus' teachings? You do, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So how do we uh, square that with the passage here in John? It's our choice to receive him. It's our choice to believe in him. It's our choice to love him as he is obviously loving us, as he is giving us the truth, as he is calling us, as he's calling us into the light. That's our choice. Amen. Now let's go back on to Jesus being God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. There in the passage we hear for the first time the the titles of Son and Father. We go back up to John 1.1 and now we know who we're talking about. In the beginning was the Word, a.k.a. the Son. And the Son was with God, a.k.a. the Father. And the Word, a.k.a. the Son, was God like the Father. We don't say he's the same person of the Father or the same person of God who he's facing because that, that twists the Greek around as well. And this, and this is called A, B, and C of John 1, 1. So the first part is called A, the second part is called B, the last part is called C. In John 1, B here, it says, and the word was with God, prostantheon, face to face with him. He can't be face to face with himself. 
And then it says here, and the word was God, and we know that the word was God is used as a predicate nominative. And another way to think of it is it modifies the noun of the logos. It modifies it. So it's not trying to say that he's the same person he's facing like the oneness Pentecostals, and it's not a God, a separate God. It's literally saying, and the word was divine in his nature. You guys get that, right? Now look at John 1.14, and it works perfectly. The Word became flesh. The Father didn't become flesh. That contradicts the oneness Pentecostals. The Word, the Son became flesh, made His dwelling among us. We've seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father. So He's facing the Father, who is full of grace and truth. John the Baptist testifies about Him. And then the name of Jesus is mentioned for the first time in verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, but grace, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So now we know the word, the Son, is Jesus Christ. When did Jesus get that name? When he came into the incarnation. You shall call his name Yahshua, uh, Jehovah saves, Yahweh saves. And Christ simply means uh, Messiah, not, not his last name. So we put it together now. We come to verse 18. John does the work for us. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. So that's why we know we interpret it correctly when we go, in the beginning was the Son, and the Son was with uh, God the Father, and the Son was God like the Father. That's exactly the point that John is getting across to us. And he, Jesus, is the creator of all things. There's not multiple creators in the Bible. There's only one creator in the Bible. But as we learn about the trinities, there's three persons that call themselves the creator and do the work of creation. And so, like I've said before, sometimes the oneness Pentecostals will take you to... Um, uh, Isaiah chapter 9 and say, oh, he's called the everlasting father. He's called the wonderful counselor. These are all titles for, uh, these are titles for the father and for the Holy Spirit. And so that must mean that Jesus is the, the Holy Spirit and the father as well. And then they'll take you to Matthew, 9, uh, Matthew 28, 19. And then they'll say, oh, well, the one name is Jesus because we baptize in the name of the father, son, and Holy Spirit. And the book of Acts says they baptize in the name of Jesus. They're just as twisted up in the scripture as the Calvinist is. Now, the difference between the oneness Pentecostal and the Calvinist is the Calvinist is saved because they believe in the Trinity and the doctrines of, of grace and the salvation by faith alone. Oneness Pentecostals believe in the wrong nature of God and they believe in a salvation by works. You have to be saved. Um, uh, you're saved by believing in Jesus, being baptized in Jesus' name, and then speaking in tongues. We believe by faith alone in Christ alone for the glory of God alone. Amen? So we are reformers. Don't let any Calvinist tell you that, that they're the only reformers. That's a devil's lie. We've been there as long as they have. Just because theirs were more popular, that doesn't mean anything. You can learn about the, uh, uh, the people who were the remonstrants and the, the people who were uh, even preceding the time of Martin Luther and them. There were all different thoughts on soteriology, so don't let Calvinists take that all for themselves. But look at what the oneness will say. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. We all know that's the word, that's Jesus there. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Well, isn't that what John says the Holy Spirit is? He's our advocate, he's our Paracletos, he's our counselor, and then mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So they say, Jesus, he's the Son. We know that from this context. Jesus is the counselor of the Holy Spirit, and he's the Father. What do we say to that? We say simply that Jesus can do the work of all these things, have the title of all this, and not be the person. Now, I'm a father, my dad's a father, but I'm not my dad. 
I do the work of a father in a spiritual sense when I come here. I do the work of a father at home with my children, but that never means I'm dad, my father. Do you guys get that? I do the work of a counselor. That doesn't mean I'm Dr. Phil, the counselor. Okay, so the Holy Spirit is the counselor in all of those things, and we know him as that, but also Jesus is the counselor, and the Father is the counselor. And there's not three counselors. There's only one God, and there's only, uh, there, there's, there's not three counselors. There's one, and man, uh, not manifesting, but um, uh, uh, um, existing in three separate persons. So one God is counselor. One God is almighty. One God is creator. Now, where it gets confusing is we insert the, 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 the title here, Father, and we go, well, that's also the title of the person of the Father. Well, yeah, but just separate them and just understand, I can do the work of a father and not be the same person as my father. I can do the work of a counselor and not be the Holy Spirit. And that's actually his name is the Holy Spirit. He is, he is a counselor, and he does those things, but once again, Jesus is a counselor. So their, their names are the Father. I don't even even know, because it says the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, so sometimes that gets confusing. I think it's just good to say uh, the name is Yahweh, the great God of Israel, and the person's names, to clarify a little bit, or the person's uh, 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 title they wish to be known by above all others is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So before Jesus ever had that name, he was known as the Son. Now, the tricky thing about that is, is that the Son took on a name that is now the greatest name given among men. And so sometimes people even try to say, uh, like the Jehovah Witnesses, if Jesus is under the Father, then that means he's less than the Father because the Father has more authority. But authority doesn't change nature. Just because I have authority of, over my wife, that doesn't mean I have a different nature. I'm a, more of a, I'm a better human than my wife, and I've taught you guys that as well. Just because I'm over my children doesn't mean that my uh, children are less human than me, okay? So just because the Father has authority over the Son and the Father and Son have authority over the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that their natures are different. But where... where where we show them back then is that, hold on, Yahweh is not the name that all the nations say for salvation. It's actually Jesus now. So though the Son serves the Father and glorifies the Father as, as his Father in God, the Father gives Jesus the center of all human worship. So it's not just like uh, they, it only works in favor of the Father. The Son also has things that the Father does not have. The Son has a name that everyone confesses. Do you guys get my point there? So there's mutual submission, and there's, mutu uh, there's mutual submission, and I, I want to say there's, there's different roles that they have and different um, honors that they get, though they are all equally God. So there's no reason to get confused over that. Now, when we look to that passage, let's just review it real quick, because I know I went in a lot of different directions. Let's just put it together in three verses. John 1, 1, John 1, 14, and John 1, 18. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Very simple. How do we understand the, the nature? I mean, how do we understand the persons there and then their nature? Is we understand the Word becomes flesh, and we understand that's the Son. So that's the person of the Son, and then the person that he's facing that is called God is the Father. And mostly throughout the Bible, God the Father is his title in that way, or his Father is generically using the term theos or God in the Scripture, especially with Paul. 
but that never takes away from Jesus being God. Jesus is also called God as well. And remember, if a Jehovah Witness says, see all the times, like, like let's just go to Ephesians chapter 1. They'll say, see all the times um, the Father's called God and Jesus is called Lord. That shows you he's not God. Well, if you want to play by that rule, then that means the Father's not Yahweh. Because the Lord there is Yahweh. Do you guys get it? He says, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So if they want to say, look, the Father is God, the Father is God, look at that, the Father is God, and Jesus is just Lord, and Lord there just means like landlord and master. No, it does. That's not what it means there. Lord is always referring to Yahweh in these texts. We can show you by simply going to the, uh, the passages. Let's go here to... Um, Let's go to this, this note that I have right here so I don't try to do it off the top of my head. Let's go to, nobody say anything because I know I have it, huh? Let's go to Isaiah chapter 45. Let's go to Philippians chapter 2 and Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah, Philippians Chapter 2, Isaiah 45. And watch, I'll pull this together. This is how we know when, when, when Paul says Jesus is Lord, he means Yahweh, okay? It says here, and every tongue shall acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. So how does Paul intend us to understand Jesus Christ is Lord in the context of every knee bowing in heaven and on earth, confessing him to do that, confessing him as that, okay? That's the context. Where does that come from? That comes from Isaiah. Listen to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 5. I am the Lord, talking Yahweh. No doubt about it. All caps means it's Yahweh. And there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know there's none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light, create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all of these things. Does everybody see who's talking here? It is the Lord. Now let's keep going on down here. Let's keep going down, down to where he says everyone's going to confess his name. Here we go. Coming on down, all the way down here. Look at this, verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all ye ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my, uh, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow, by me every tongue will swear, they will say of me in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. So who are we confessing this before, according to Isaiah? The Lord, Yahweh, every knee, every tongue bowing before Yahweh. Who are we now calling Yahweh? Who are we saying is Yahweh? Acknowledging is our deliverer, is our Savior. Jesus Christ is Yahweh. Every knee bowing before the person of the Son. Do you guys see that? Do you see how easily that works itself out? So every way the Jehovah Witness tries to take away from the deity of Christ and the equality with the Father, they lose on all accords. So does the Father get glory? Absolutely. Does Jesus Christ get glory and worship? Absolutely. That's why when you go, let's just show it right there. Go to the book of Revelation. Uh, you were starting off in chapter 4. 
we see here that the 24 elders, they throw down their, um, their crowns, they worship before the throne of God, and we see that uh, day and night these living creatures are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now watch this. The Lamb of God comes before the throne and begins to receive the same worship. Watch it. Chapter 5, he opens up the, the scrolls and he makes a kingdom of priests. Now watch this here. In a loud voice, they encircle the throne in verse, in the verse 11 there, and the living creatures and the elders, in a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature, all those creatures before him that were worshiping just the Father. Now watch. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Now watch. The four living creatures said amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. Proskenehu worshiped him. The same worship that Jesus received from Peter on the boat. Let me just give you that real quick. Jesus worshipped by Peter. He fell down and worshipped him. Go to Matthew chapter 14, verse 33. Matthew chapter 14, verse 33. For those who are watching online, if you want more of a easier-to-follow message, watch Sunday's message on this yesterday. This is more for the Bible college students who kind of follow me through my, my, my depths here. And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. This is talking about with Peter and Jesus coming back into the boat after walking on water. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him. That's including Peter, saying, truly you are the Son of God. They worshipped him equal to the Father as the Son of God. Now, he's not the Father, but he gets the same worship as the Father. And we saw that in Revelation. Unto the one who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. Who is Peter's God? Go to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Very clear who Peter's God is. Bible says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Does he contradict himself there now? No, he's distinguishing between the persons. Right here at the beginning, he says, Jesus is my God and Savior. And then through here, he says, through the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Well, who is he referring to here when he just says God like that? The Father. But he calls Jesus also God. Are there two gods? No, there's only one God. Amen. So we'll take questions in just a moment, but this is really just the introduction. So I wanted to work through this so that we would have something to go to because I want to show you some things, some things that I didn't get a chance to talk about yesterday. So how do we show the Jewish people that the Trinity is not something we made up? How do we show Muslims who came after Christianity but tried to discredit Christianity but yet at the same time affirm our books is we take them to the books they affirm. The Muslims and the Jew both affirm the Tanakh. They affirm the teachings of Moses. And so we can use them, and, and the prophets as well. So we can use them, and the Zabar, the Psalms, and the Injil, the Gospels. So probably here other than Isaiah and Daniel, Look up and see if they receive Isaiah and Daniel as prophets. I don't have the list in front of me. Uh, you can use... Thank you. 
Okay, just double check on that. So other than Daniel, every single one of them, the Muslims will have to receive, and obviously all of, Je- uh, all of the Jews. Abraham's visitor, Genesis 18, the Lord appeared to Abraham on the plains of Mamre. And you show this to anybody, Jew, Muslim, Jehovah Witness, who doesn't believe you can see God, what's going on right here? He appears to them. They say, well, these are angels. No, if you go down to chapter 19, it says the two angels arrived at Sodom and Gomorrah. So there was three guests. One is called the Lord. The other one are these two angels. Now we go to uh, Exodus. Who did Moses meet with at the burning bush? Who did Moses meet with face to face? It has to be Jesus because here it says Yahweh would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. But then further down here, he asked to see Jesus. uh, He asked to see Yahweh's face. But he said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. Well, why is that true? Because John also says the exact same things in John 1.18. Notice it. That's not there just for our good health. That's there to remind us of the Jewish principle. No one has ever seen God. Well, who's the person of God that we've never seen? Who's the one Moses cannot see face to face? Who is that, Desi? God the Father. That's right. But who is Moses meeting with face to face? God the Son, Jesus, the Word. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and his closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Is this Bible aerobics? No, you're just reading things in context. You're explaining mysteries. I understand to a Jewish person that they, don't, they, they, they admit this but don't see it yet, but the Muslim has no excuse because the Muslim accepts Jesus as the Messiah and accepts the Injil. That's just redonkulous right there. Because you're now just, you're literally changing something that has already been written down. They try to say that we have a a different version of the gospel than was around during that time. But what's really ignorant about that is that our, uh, our, our texts and our manuscripts are in museums that predate Muhammad's life. So what are you talking about? And our church fathers, the creed we read yesterday, and we'll maybe get a chance to get to today, the Athanasian Creed, predates Muhammad by almost 200 years. So what are you all even talking about? Like, this don't even make any sense. And then when you read the Quran, it's as if you're reading somebody who's totally ignorant of every Christian doctrine. It literally just sounds like somebody's making up something for their own benefit. They have no idea what Christian doctrine is. They never even deal with Christian doctrine. They think the Trinity is God the Father, the Son, and Mary, and God and the Father and Mary made Jesus. And so it's, it's ridiculous. That's why he says, uh, say not three. God doesn't have a son. He's, he's above those kinds of things. He's a father to no one because they're literally thinking, as, as they understood Christian doctrine in their own worldview, that God sired Mary and made Jesus. So they don't have an, any idea of that. And then when it comes to the crucifixion of Jesus, it says uh, uh, they, they crucified him not, nor did they kill him, but it appeared to be so. They make the most ambiguous statement on the crucifixion, which is the number one supported thing in all history about Jesus' life, is that he was crucified. All atheists, non-believers, everybody believes that this man, Jesus, was crucified. You can't say you believe in a Jesus of history and not believe in the crucifixion. That's why people like liberal Muslims like Asla Roslan, who, um, what's his name? Asla Roslan? Azza? Azza Roslan. Just spell that out. Azza, A-A-Z-A, then Roslan, R-Z. L-Y-A-N, something like that. When he writes his book from a liberal Muslim perspective, he goes, yeah, yeah, Jesus died on the cross. But the moment he gives that up, he has to now admit the redemption of the cross. He's given up Islam. So once he thinks he's conceded something that's not of value to him, it's actually a big deal. How do you say his name? You looked it up just like that? 
Aza. Let me just say how I spelled it, spelled it to you. I said Aza, and then I said Roslyn, like this. R-Y-Z-A-L-N. That's how I think I gave it to you. Oslo Roslyn. And, of course, it doesn't come up that way, but let me try again. Roslyn. Let's try it that way. Ros, um, let's just put out the book, Zealot. The book is Zealot, and we'll get his name right here. There we go. How do you spell the first part of his name? There we go, Riza, and then let's put it up here, Aslan. Aslan. So this guy right here admits that Jesus was died, but he's a liberal Muslim, so no, real Muslims don't care about him, but he's trying to be the most honest he can with the historical fact of Jesus, and that is we have a crucified Jesus. Now, if we have a crucified Jesus, we have a resurrected Jesus, especially according to the, the Quran, because then it says that uh, uh, Muhammad, not Muhammad, but Allah took him up to be with him. Okay. So there are so many different directions we can go in to try to maintain the doctrine of Jesus being God. We want to be faithful to the scriptures. Uh, obviously, you're going to have to have a good doctrine of the Trinity, and the good doctrine of the Trinity is built on those three foundations. There's one God in the Bible, Hero Israel, the Lord that God is one, Akkad, he is one. That is Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Shema. Then number two, there are three separate per persons who claim to be that God. You can go to Matthew 28, 19 in the New Testament, or you can go to the creation. Um, there the Father speaking, the Son in, uh, enacting and walking with man, and the Holy Spirit doing his, his, his work upon the earth, and that being the plural, the Elohim, let us make man in our image. And then after they fell in John, uh, Genesis 3 says, now man has become like one of us. That is not him speaking to angels, nor the majestic plural. That is obviously the Trinity. Uh, you can show uh, places here as I'm talking about, uh, like Isaiah, the son is given. We know that's not the father. There's places in um, uh, Exodus where he says in one place he's talking to him face to face, and then there's another place you can't see his face. So maybe not as clear in other places, but we know the Trinity's there. And then the New Testament reveals it clearly in the baptism. Jesus is in the water. Dove comes down. Holy uh, voice of the Father. Like I said, Matthew 28, 19, the baptismal formula. And then the third part is, is they're equal. First foundation, one God. Second foundation, there are three persons who claim to be that one God. Third foundation, they are all co-equal and co-eternal. And that's where you go through the attributes of Jesus, attributes of the Holy Spirit, because we know the Father has those attributes. That's easy. But then you just go through the Bible, and you see Jesus has, the Son has the same attributes of the Father, and the Holy Spirit has the same attributes of the Father. And that's where we go to the New Testament. He's the eternal Word. He's been there from the beginning. He's uncreated. There's only one uncreated being. That's God. Boom. He has the attribute. The Holy Spirit is uncreated. He's called eternal. Uh, only one is worthy of worship. Jesus gets worship, so he's equal to the Father, our great God and Savior. We don't have multiple gods. We only have one God. Peter calls him that, and Paul calls him that. He is the image of the invisible God in Colossians 1.15. He shares the name of God, and as I said in Matthew 28.19. He is God sitting on his heavenly throne in, in, in Hebrews 1.8, as was talked about in Psalm 45.6. And then the beginning and the end, and I showed you guys that yesterday. But let's go to... Um, Let's go to the end of the book, Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22. Now, I wish Jared could have stayed for this. Jared, can you get ready for your class and keep that door open? I'd love for you to hear these last couple things because I want to actually talk about Apollinarius and Neopollinarianism. Sounds like a big, complicated word, but it's just a way we understand the incarnation. So keep that door open, good sir. Maybe even scooch over here a little bit if you can. 
Uh, it says it in also uh, Revelation 1, 17 through 18, but Jesus speaks again in Revelation 22, the last chapter. He says, look, I am coming soon. My reward is with, with me. I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now, Isaiah 41, 4 is very clear. There can only be one first. There can only be one last, correct? Only one first, one last. Yahweh speaking, who has done this and carried it through, calling forth the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, was with the first of them, and with the last, I am he. So is it possible to have two firsts? Can you have two lasts? So if I say God is the beginning, he's the beginning here, he's the first, he's the alpha, can there be another alpha? Can there be another first? Can there be another beginning? And by the way, this is why we're presuppositional in our apologetics. We thank the Calvinists for giving this to us as a system that we use. I was using it before I even knew that it was kind of used by Calvinists, but we understand that there is, it is impossible for anything to proceed true and knowledge, in a knowledge, an epistemological sense, and an ontological sense as well, except from God. God is the foundation of all being. God is the foundation of all knowing. There are no other firsts. There are no other standards. We do not prove this to be true by another standard. Otherwise, that standard would be the thing that which would be the first thing. This is the first. All that is is because God is the great I am, self-existing one. Now he says he's also the last. He is the omega, the last letter in their alphabet. He, he, he is there the last, okay? Oh, he's the end. Beginning and the end, alpha and omega, and uh, first and the last. He, he's now the one that encompasses the entire spectrum of all that can possibly be. We know that to be Jesus, amen? Amen. Vinny, will you come and erase this, and I take the next eight minutes to go on to the most controversial thing of the the subject I had to discuss. So what I want to talk to you guys about is understanding the Son of God in his incarnate state and how what we believe is being accomplished, which is that Jesus is fully God, fully human, two natures, one person. All of these fail to explain who he is, and Apollinarianism is the closest, and so William Lane Craig revamped Apollinarianism to make it Neo-Apollinarianism to give a sense of which this makes sense. Because as of right now, we only have this in our creeds, fully God, fully human, two natures, one person, like we have in the Athanasian Creed, as I read yesterday. But we don't have a sentence to explain it. So here he says... Uh, He's completely God, completely human, rational soul, human flesh, equal to the Father as regards to divinity, less than the Father as regard to humanity. Uh, although he is God and human, yet Christ is not two, but one. He is one, however, not by his divinity turned into flesh, but by God taking humanity to himself. Okay? He is one, certainly not by the blending of his essence, but by the unity of his person. For just as one human is both rational soul and flesh, so too the one Christ is both God and human. Now, I put up the links here where, where William Lane Craig goes into it in his uh, discussion here. Here's the Wikipedia article William Lane Craig has mentioned under Apollinarianism. And then William Lane Craig actually did a, div not a dividing line, that's James White. He did um, Reasonable Faith is this, but what's the name of his podcast? Is it Reasonable Faith? Name of his podcast? Okay, Reasonable Faith podcast. He explains what he believes right here in these three points and... 
those are the links I want you guys to have. The, the Wikipedia I don't have up because that's real easy for you to find. Okay. So the Council of Chalcedon agreed that Christ is one person with two natures. So that was a council that was very important. The Council of Chalcedon, I believe, happened in the early 400s or late 300s. Let me pick one. Let's go late 300s. Let's say 380-something. Let's go 380 and see what it is. Nobody tell it to me yet. i got to see it for myself. Of course, it's not going to work with everybody watching. If you found it, shout it out. What is it? 451. I was off. I should have stuck with the 400s, right? Okay. So that was over the nature of Jesus, and he has two natures, human and divine. The soul of the human nature of Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, the Logos. The human nature of Christ is composed of the Logos and a human body. Now, number three, the divine aspects of the Logos are largely concealed in Christ's subconsciousness. That's a big thing right now to understand. So that he had a walking conscious life that would be typical of any human being and that like the mass of an iceberg submerged beneath the surface, so is his divine subconscious lay uh, there lay the fullness of his divinity. The walking, the walking consciousness was typically human. Okay, so there we go. Now, here's the way I describe this. So you have the Son existing with the Father. No doubt, and then we'll just do a little trinity here, Holy Spirit, you know, Father, not the Son, Son, not the Spirit, Father, not the Spirit, but Father and Son, God, Son and the Spirit, all equally God, equally God, equally God, but not the same person. You guys know what I'm drawing there, right? Okay, could have probably put it up on the screen. Let me just put it up on the screen here real quick. But it takes more time, but I just want you guys to see this. Okay. How do I feel Jesus came into the flesh? There's the thing I was drawing. Okay. Let's get that bad boy up. I believe Jesus did not, I, I just got to pay attention to this, because otherwise I'm going to say the wrong words. Okay. Okay, here we go. Now, the reason why I like to have the two up there is because the Father and Son, the Father and Son send the Holy Spirit. You guys know why I have the triangle like that. I used to have the triangle on the bottom, but I think like, like the one next to it right there, but I think it gets a little bit more confusing. Okay. Now, think about this. The sun, I'm going to draw it like this. The sun becomes man. He takes on flesh. Okay. Now, this is where the confusion has gone. Does he blend the two? No. He doesn't, right? Let's put this up here because this, this video I have on the notes from yesterday is really cool. It really help, helps us. Does, does he blend the two? No. He doesn't blend the two. He is fully God, fully human. Does he now have two persons? Is there now the son and then there's this fleshly guy walking around, uh, walking on the inside of Jesus, named, uh, walking with the son named Jesus? That's why i got to be very clear with the titles now. That's what cults actually believe. Like how the Holy Spirit comes into us, they believe the Son of God literally comes into them, and now there's them and the Son of God, and now they've been made the Son of God. And that's what, that's what Apollo Quibloy believes, and he believes he's the appointed Son of God. That's, that's a cult belief. So there's not the Son, and then there's not this person named Jesus walking around together, and Jesus literally, this person is growing up with this consciousness like, oh my goodness, I'm God, and I got God in me right now, and I'm doing all these weird things, you know, whatever. That's not what we believe either, okay? 
Now, do we believe that somehow he ever stopped being less God? No. Was he ever less human? No. One person. So here's how Apollinarius tried to describe it. He tried to say the son exactly as he was, just put on an earth suit, that's it, done deal. The problem with that is, is that he never says that the son became a man. He just took on flesh, denying that he was actually two natures a man. So that's where he was wrong. But he had something that was very true, and I believe with William Lane Craig that we can use, and you've heard me say it before. Jesus takes on an earth suit. He does that, but what does he do at the same time? Now watch this. He limits his understanding to only that which would be a man. So now in nature, he operates only as a man, limited by the flesh he is in. So that's how I believe we can understand Jesus being fully God, fully human, two natures, one person. Because otherwise, you're going to fail in one of those ways. Now, some people, like good apologists that I love, I won't name their names right now, they, they won't even try to make that statement. They just leave it at saying what he is. He's fully God, he's fully man, he's two natures, one person, leave it alone. I like to make the statement because it helps me understand. Like when I'm talking, if I would have been there as a disciple talking to Jesus, what is actually happening in that moment? Am I talking to two persons? Am I talking to a blended? I really believe it's the one person. I'm talking to Jesus, the eternal son of God. But when I'm talking to him on the earth, he doesn't know when he's coming back. He, he gets tired. He is experiencing everything in a limited way. And I think that fits best with Philippians. And that helps me understand that he's still a man, though. He's not partial man. He's fully man. And yet he's fully God as that one person. Now, some people may say, now that he's glorified, does he limit his understanding? I say no. Then they may say, now is he still fully a man? That's the one weakness of neo Apollinarianism, and neo just means a new version of it, or a modified version. So I would say what constitutes him being a man is that he has forever identified with the humbling of now being confined. I don't want to use to say the word confined because he can still be in all places at all time, but having his nature um, not confined. Let me just say this: conjoined, hypostasis, joined with the flesh. But now he has unlimited understanding. He has in the flesh the full mind of God, that the, full, the full knowledge that he had before then. So it's a little bit controversial. Don't take it just because I said it. I want you to literally go back and do those things. And maybe, let's not say maybe, let's say by God's sovereignty was not meant to be a full discussion today on this because I think the other things are probably more important. This, this does get into more... Um, hypothesizing, you know, coming up with ideas, trying to describe it best. And so you can listen to William Lane Craig, and I, and I, I agree with it because I don't think he was two persons, and I don't think he blended it, and I don't think he was half something and half something else. I think that this perfectly explains how he's one person, the son. The son was in flesh. We know that, and he humbled himself. So it's all him. He doesn't become this guy named Jesus. It's always him. And it's not man becoming God, it's God becoming man. But then how is he fully man then? Because he limits himself that way. How is he fully man now that he has not limited himself? It's because he's in flesh forever, identifying as the God man. 
Now, some people may say, well, why wasn't that, why did he have to limit himself to be fully man in the flesh and not limit himself now? I couldn't answer that. That's where now I would have to stop and say, um, it seemed to have worked for him. Because that, so I, so I, I go one step further, and I can't go anymore after that. Amen. Because I don't know. I don't know why. Um, why doesn't he stay limited in some way? Well, I think that would be not right because he wants to be who he is. He's God. But why did he limit himself? It makes sense. He did it for atonement. And I think that's where it goes back to Philippians and our application yesterday in the sermon is that we're supposed to take out of these great theological discussions the application to be humble, to be meek, because that's what Jesus did, and that's what we're supposed to do. So here's how, here's how we'll end, just reading it. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, so he limits himself. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. So he takes on the nature of a human being made in human likeness, but he doesn't have two minds. He doesn't have a Jesus mind and a son mind. And being found in appearance as man, see, he's appearing as a man. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. So that's the humility, because when he's here, this flesh can die, and he doesn't know everything, and he's scared, and his flesh is like our flesh, not wanting to do that. He says, my flesh is weak, but my spirit is willing. I think it satisfies everything. Amen? And therefore, uh, God exalted him to the highest place. And so it was for that purpose. And so that's why he's still fully man, but he's fully the Lamb of God slain, uh, slain for us. That's his forever identification as man. But it's not meant to stay in a hum humble state because then he's given the name that at the name, uh, that he's given the name that is above every name, and at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. And Jesus Christ, they're being specifically used, is the joining of the Son with flesh. So he, it was meant for him to be glorified. So that's where I would answer that question. It was just meant for him to be humbled in that state for a while, but to always identify as man and now be glorified to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen. I'm going to pray as I walk back here. Father, I thank you for this wonderful day. Thank you for our time of learning about you and who you are, Father, who the Son is and who the Holy Spirit is. And may we honor the Son all the days of our lives and live for him in all that we do. In Jesus' name. And everybody said...